Good morning, church. Good to see you. Can you stand to your feet as we begin today? Let's focus our hearts in to worship the Lord, to come into this place with hearts of gratitude. A couple of weeks ago, we read in Hebrews 12 where it says, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship, let us offer to our God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So let's approach the Lord with thankfulness for what He's done in our lives. Let's sing this together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sing us together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in our Savior with every spiritual pride. Shoulder my shame, shoulder my shame, gave me your name.
thank you that we are yours, that you have called us by name, that we've been chosen. Thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. Lord, we're so thankful this morning. Church, James 1, 17 and 18, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And so this God from whom every good gift and perfect gift comes from, let us continue to worship this God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise, praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son.
Here, something that we do every week is we go through a question and answer in the New City Catechism, just some essentials of our faith. We're in question and answer number 13 today. So the question is this. I'm going to ask this question and then let's, let's say the answer out loud as it's on our screen. The question is, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. We see in places in Scripture that confirm this in Romans 3, chapter 10, or Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, where it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As we read passages like this, we're reminded of two things. One, we're reminded of our inability to keep the law, that there are things like this that we are hopeless to do. We can't do them. We were never designed to do them. But yes, it also brings us to a much more wonderful reality that what we don't have the power to do, Christ has done. And he continues to do on our behalf. And so let's take a minute to pray, seek the Lord, and thank him that we are powerless and he is all-powerful and everything comes from him. So can you pray with me? Jesus, we look at passages like this and we thank you that for, for us, Lord, this is not bad news. Romans 3 is not bad news for us, but Romans 3 is wonderful news because it brings us to you and your finished work upon the cross. It brings us to you and your continual intercession for us all of us in this room we look at this week at our own shortcomings and our sins and our mistakes and just our humanity Lord we ask that you would forgive us 
we confess those things to you this week. Lord, thank you that you have atoned for our sins, past, present, and future. Thank you that you have given us much to be thankful for, to worship you for. Thank you that we can approach you, approach your throne with boldness. How we need you this morning, Jesus. Oh, fill our hearts with gratitude as we continue to worship today.
to this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. that we look to our own goodness, who we are. Let us fix our eyes upon what you have done, King Jesus. Lord, strengthen our weak knees today. Bring encouragement to your saints. Pray that you would speak to us out of your word as we look at Hebrews 13. Lord, let's do a transformation and a work within us, within our church. Lord, thank you for being ever faithful in every season. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, you can be seated. The older kids this morning, it is ages 7 through 10. Ages 7 through 10 can go to Bibleville and be dismissed. morning. I got, uh, I got held up by a train that was leaving the, um, I, I left, I do two, two copies of my manuscript, one for the people who run the uh, PowerPoint and then one here and I left, I left mine on my desk and I had one here and so I had to go figure all that out. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We are close, aren't we? We are getting there. 
just a few weeks left in the book of Hebrews. And one of the major things that we've seen in the book of Hebrews to this point has been that Christ has inaugurated, he has instituted, and he upholds and mediates this new covenant. And we've looked, like the, the author has been so careful and detailed and thorough in helping us see how much better, from every conceivable angle, this new covenant is than the old that God made with his people. As gracious as that was, the new covenant is just better. Jesus is better. And that's what we've called our whole series, Jesus is Better. And here at the end, in, ver- in, in chapter 13, uh, as, as he closes down this letter, he is giving us exhortation and instruction about what to do in light of all the things that we've heard in the book of Hebrews. And so last week, what we looked at is that the author of Hebrews wants us to have rightly ordered loves within our heart uh, so that we become the right sort of people and do the right sort of things. So he addressed our loves last week, and this week uh, there are going to be a handful of commands that he gives. And so what I'm calling today's uh, sermon is Life Under the New Covenant. So here's what it looks like. This is not an exhaustive list. You have to read the entire New Testament. And still you might not have a completely exhaustive list of all that it means to live under the new covenant, right? But uh, these are a handful of definite things that it means for us to be new covenant people under the lordship and the kingship of Christ our king. Um, So if you would stand with me and let's read Hebrews chapter 13 verses 7 through 17 together. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, your people, have gathered here to hear what you have to say. And so, Lord, I'm aware of the weight of what I am standing here to do today. 
I know that I will give an account for my words. I know that I will give an account for the way that I lead. And I'm humbled under the task of speaking the word of God to the people of God. And so I want to ask you for your help, your divine aid from your Holy Spirit to give understanding, faithful interpretation of your word and right and good, true application. And God, may this be a life-changing event for the people here. Not because I have some clever things to say, but because we've encountered God and we've heard his word. Let us not harden our hearts when we hear your voice, God, but let us soften our hearts and humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Thank you for the salvation that you've purchased for us through Christ. Please use this time for the benefit of your people and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Four major things uh, that I want to point to uh, as we talk about this life under the new covenant. The first thing is it is a life of imitation. That's in verses 7 and 8. It's a life of imitation. Uh, The word leaders actually occurs three times in Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 7 and 17 and 24. That same word for leaders, all three times. Uh, In verse 7, it is referring to a different group of people than it is in 17 and 24. And I'm going to explain why. But the first time that we see the word leaders, what, what we're thinking about, what he's asking them to look back on, are the leaders that they had had previously, likely who have died for their faith. They've been martyred because they believe in Jesus. And so he's saying, remember them. It says they spoke. It doesn't say they're speaking the way that in verse 17, it talks about the leaders currently are keeping watch over your soul. This This is a completed action that happened in the past. They spoke to you the word of God. And then you're considering, if you're just looking at this verse with me, you're considering the outcome of their way of life. You are you're, you're looking at their life as a whole and you're thinking, you're giving intentional thought to where their life led them, okay? So you're look, he's calling the people here in verse seven to look back on some of the original leaders probably of the church. Uh, it might even be that some of the apostles are the ones he's talking about here. People who have adorned the doctrine of God with their blood. They have, they have given, they've shed their blood for the teaching that they gave. They spoke the word of God. He says, remember them. But he ends, not just rem- it's not just think about them. It's think about them with an eye towards something. What is it? Look, verse seven, last three words, if you're in the ESV with me. Imitate their faith. Okay? This is a radical call for the people of God. Think about the men and women who have gone before, who have given their life to teach you the word of God. Think of the persecuted. We we talked about this last week. Think of the persecuted church right now and imitate their faith. And then in verse 8, 
Like some of the, like if we can be honest about Hebrews 13, 7 through 17, the passage we just read, some of it feels disjointed and out of place. Maybe you felt that. I just want you to know that I felt that too. And so I dug a lot this week to try to figure out why does he put verse 8 right there where it is? And then what is going on in verses 9 through 14? And why does that matter with what's been said and what he's about to say? Okay, that's, that's why we study the Bible verse by verse the way that we do. So why say verse 8 right there? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. Like, this is one of the greatest truths in the whole Bible. This is one of the greatest truths in the book. This is one of the foundations of the Christian life. And so it's good news. But why here? Like, what purpose does this good news serve after verse 7? It's because leaders come and go. Do they not? Like if, if he's saying, remember the leaders that you had and they're not the ones that you currently have. Remember them, imitate their faith. They've gone. Leaders die. Leaders fail, right? Churches come and go. Like local churches come and go. Like Jesus is... Capital C Church will never, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. But like sometimes churches close their doors, right? Kingdoms rise and fall. Like part of what it means to be a creature as part of creation is that change happens to us, but not to Christ. Not to Christ. If all of this burns down tomorrow, you have Christ. This did not happen to Christ. Right? Change does not happen to God. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. So what an encouragement when they're thinking about their leaders who have given their lives to adorn the doctrines that they taught, and they're considering doing the same thing, what more could you want from this author than to say Jesus is the same? He'll never change. He'll never fail you. You can rest the full weight of your eternity upon him, and you will find him faithful. Godly leaders are a gift, but they aren't ultimate. Remember your leaders, but hope in the Lord. Could we say amen? I'm, I, I, I want to I say that again, and let's just pretend this is the first time. Let's just say amen to that. Remember your leaders, but hope in the Lord. Amen, right? Like Jesus is the one we're here for. You're not here for me, primarily. You're not here for one another, primarily, although that's a great benefit of gathering together. We're here for him. This is about him. He's the same. He's the same Saturday and Sunday and Monday and in 2023 and in 3046 and until the end of the world and beyond the end of the world, you'll never find him changing. 
He is pure being. He is not becoming. We are becoming. And so the author also, like that, praise the Lord for that encouragement based on verse 7. But you know what he's also telling them in saying Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever? He's telling them those men who, who spoke the word of God to you and gave their lives that you're called to remember and imitate, they were resting on the same things that they were teaching, right? And Jesus is not all of a sudden going to change on you so that what they believed was true is going to be different for you to get in. Like Jesus is not going to change salvation on you so that when you stand before God to give an account that, that somehow you are believing in Jesus, but you don't get in because he just decided differently, arbitrarily one day to do something different, a different program, didn't tell us about it. You will always, what worked for them will work for you, will work for your children, will work for your grandchildren. Everyone in the whole world, in all of history, can put their hope in God and will find him faithful because he never changes. The Bible will always be true and God will never waver or alter his commitment to those truths. So inasmuch as these leaders did truly speak the word of God, inasmuch uh, as their lives did evidence genuine salvation and they did trust in the Lord, you're called to imitate them. The word there is the same word where we get our word mimic from. Mimic their faith. Imitate their faith. And he's telling them, you will not miss out. You will experience the same outcome of their life if you imitate their faith. Because Jesus is always the same. Ours is a life of imitation. Paul, in a couple of places, is going to tell the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So ours is a life of imitating Christ and imitating those who also imitate Christ. It's part of what it means to live life under this new covenant. Okay, then we get to verses 9 through 14. These are the ones that I think are probably the most difficult to understand in this whole passage here. And wouldn't you know it, they're also, they take up the most of the passage. Um, here's what I will say about the new covenant life as it relates to verses 9 through 14. The new covenant life is a life upheld by grace. Okay? I, I really believe that this is the heart of what verses 9 through 14 are getting at. It's a life upheld by grace. Uh, let me read those again for you. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. In other words, we're, we're looking back on what our leaders taught us at the beginning. The gospel, the word of God, Right? So don't be led away by strange and diverse teachings, for it's good to, for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Excuse me, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Right, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
So they have been taught the word of God's grace. In other words, those leaders who taught the word of God, who taught the grace of God, they were teaching their, their followers the things that would strengthen their hearts, truly, that would strengthen their hearts. And so these believers here in Hebrews who are under temptation and pressure to revert back to Judaism, um, they're, they're feeling pressure to revert to food laws and to revert to sacrifices that happen in the temple, like the Day of Atonement. And so in this section, what's ultimately happening is the author is reminding them once again of the superiority of Christ and his new covenant of grace. And so he says something like, rather than the word of God, adherence and devotion to the food laws of the Old Testament as a means of gaining standing before God are strange and diverse teachings. They're... they're, They're not the gospel. They're not the truth. They do not profit men's souls. Um, In Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says that nothing entering a person's mouth and his body through his mouth can defile that person. Okay? So food that goes in cannot defile the person. What is he going to say? The things that come out are what defile the person. Okay? Here, it's sort of the opposite principle. Things that go into your body cannot strengthen your soul. They cannot strengthen your relationship with God. Like the foods. Um, right? So they can't defile you. They can't strengthen you. Or we could just say it how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 8, 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no better off if we eat or don't eat. He's telling them to continue to believe, hope in, proclaim, and receive God's grace because that is what strengthens the heart, not food. So then he moves to talk about uh, the sacrifices of the old covenant versus the new covenant. And those who worship under the old covenant, he says, have no right to eat at the altar of the new covenant. In other words, old covenant believers, and specifically the priests, they have to repent and believe in Jesus. They cannot trust even the sacrifices that up until today they were offering. They have to trust Christ if they're to eat of this new covenant altar. So, and then he talks about the bodies of the animals being taken. uh, Like the blood is here and it's in the holy place and the body is taken outside the camp. And this is describing the Day of Atonement in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. And if you read verses 27 and 28, matter of fact, uh, go ahead and turn there with me. I think this will be a helpful thing for us all to look at together. I've got it on the screen as well. It's also on your handout. Um, It's the third book of the Old Testament. In Leviticus 16, describing the Day of Atonement, it says this. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place. So there's the blood being brought into the holy of holies to be sprinkled on the altar, right? Um, to make atonement in the holy place. Uh, the, the bull and the goat, right, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes 
and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. So what's going on in Leviticus 16? Well, we have the separation of the blood and the body, one into a holy place, and then one into essentially the wilderness, which is outside the camp uh, in, before Jerusalem and outside Jerusalem after the time that they were in Jerusalem. And it was considered this like the, the wilderness. It was considered an unclean place. And we see that because when the priest comes back in, what does he have to do? The priest can't just waltz back in to the holy places. He has to bathe himself because there's been defilement in going outside the camp. Okay, so it's, there's this holy place within the camp and then specifically in the temple. And then there's this unclean place where the body is burned. P.E. Hughes, a commentator, points out how astonishing the phrases that follow would be to the Jewish mind. Because what's happening is uh, Jesus' suffering on the cross, where did it happen? If you look at John 19, uh, verses 16 through 18, what you're going to find is that Jesus carried his cross not, not to a destination that was inside the city. Where did he go? Outside the gate of Jerusalem. He suffered outside. His body and his blood. His body was broken. His blood was shed outside the camp. Outside of Jerusalem. In the unclean place. But what happens at this cross? Look what it says. Sorry, I'm, I'm still in Leviticus. Let me get back to Hebrews real, fit, real fast. Look, verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people. Like, this is incredible because the place of uncleanness has now become the place to which we go to get cleansed, to get sanctified. We don't go into the Holy of Holies to be sanctified. We go outside the camp. With Christ in order to be sanctified. P.E. Hughes says that the unclean place has been transformed into the place of sanctification, and that it's there that Jesus is actually identifying with the uncleanness and the ungodliness and the sinfulness of the world as the sacrifice to bear their sins. How many of you had ever thought about the fact that Jesus, like, even the fact that he carried his cross outside the city of Jerusalem, like, that that mattered in our salvation? But here, Hebrews 13 tells us that it does. Like, that that, like the, the location even matters. Um, it is the one who suffered outside the camp who alone sanctifies the people by his own blood. And so taken together... Well, actually, let me, let me say this first. Essentially, what he's presenting the readers with is a choice, okay? You can continue to worship inside the camp, as it were, or you can go to Jesus outside the camp, but you can't do both. You, you can locate your security in the things that you can see of the temple and the forms of worship 
that your ancestors offered there. You can, you can locate your security in those things and in the food laws. Or, and by the way, as we've learned throughout the rest of Hebrews, not ever be sanctified and cleansed in your conscience. Or you can join Christ outside the camp in the place that the Jews would look at and call unclean, and you can be cleansed there. Truly, fully, finally, really cleansed and sanctified. It's the one who suffered outside the camp who alone sanctifies the people by his own blood. And so the point that's being made here is that to revert back to the food laws and the old covenant worship inside the camp would actually be to be led away by diverse and strange teachings and not the word of God that their leaders spoke to them, not grace that would strengthen their hearts. It would be returning back to the law. They would be making the same folly as the Galatians that Paul rails against. Foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It's the same thing. They would go back to these things that are that aren't efficacious for their salvation. They'd be led astray, led away, carried off captive from his grace. And this would actually weaken their hearts, not strengthen them. So you can be devoted to the food and be weak-hearted, or you can be devoted to grace and be strong-hearted. Those doctrines that, those, that the leaders taught and for which they shed their blood are good, right, and profitable for those who devote themselves to them. And so then he says, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Christ bore reproach outside the camp and going to him in faith may, likely will, result in that same reproach being heaped upon us. But what we get, isn't it far greater than the feelings of being reproached? Than the sufferings we might endure? Right? If you think back to Hebrews 11, 26... Just a couple of pages ago, he, who's Moses, considered the reproach of Christ, what? Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. The reproach of Christ. Why? Why do you consider the reproach of Christ worth bearing with him? It's because you get him and you get cleansed there outside the camp with him. So he says, let's go and let's, with Moses, bear the reproach of Christ that's of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And he reminds us in verse 14 why we do this. Because maybe I'll get some relief if I turn back in this life, but it's only for a little while. But there is a city that's coming that you don't want to miss out on. And it's only reached by faith and going to Christ outside the camp and being willing to bear the reproach that he endured. We're seeking. Those that seek the city to come 
go to Christ. They don't stay in Jerusalem, right? That's not the city. They're going outside because they're seeking a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, the heavenly city. I hope that that's helpful in understanding what those, the role that those verses are playing because the new covenant life, what's being said here is the new covenant life is one that is lived under grace, not according to the law. The new covenant life is also a life of sacrifice and that comes in verses 15 and 16. And so um, we don't offer sacrifices for our sins, but that doesn't mean that the new covenant people don't offer sacrifices. There are spiritual sacrifices that we offer. And this is what's being said. The word sacrifice happens twice in these two verses. So it says, through him, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So we like coming here, praising God, speaking God's praises, singing God's praises in the world. It is a sacrifice offered to God, a pleasing sacrifice offered to God. It says it's the fruit of lips that acknowledge or confess his name. Okay, so what's the root? If that's the fruit, the fruit is praise, what's the root? Well, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from, it's faith, it's faith. You believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you confess his name as Lord. And the fruit of that, the fruit of those lips that acknowledge his name, it's not just saying the words, it's having faith in all that he's done and saying the words, right? But lips that acknowledge his name, lips that are believing lips, the fruit of that faith evidence itself in a sacrifice of praise that's offered to God. We don't sacrifice animals but we give our words and our hearts, our songs to God. We give our thanks to God. We praise his name wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever happens, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he says, do not neglect, two things, not to, not to neglect, to do good and to share what you have, okay? Doing good, we could just put under the sort of phrase gospel obedience, right? Not withholding the good that we know that we're supposed to do, not doing the bad that we know that we're not supposed to do, but just doing what God tells us in his word that we're to do. We're to obey. And we ought not neglect obedience, And then he says, don't neglect to share what you have. Further fruit of faith in God. New Covenant believers in Acts would often, they would see a need and they would sell what they had and they would give the proceeds to those who were in need. They were sharing. They had all things in common. The word for like all things in common, that's koinonia, You've probably heard that word before. It means fellowship. It means togetherness. Um, that's, that's the word that's used here, to share what you have, to have all things. In, like, this is what's happening there. 
Don't neglect. Don't neglect to share what you have. Why? Because it says, for such sacrifices, doing good, sharing what you have, those are pleasing to God. So sometimes our sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes it's a sacrifice of preference where we're doing the good that maybe our flesh doesn't want to do. And sometimes uh, it's a sacrifice of stuff. But ultimately, what we're after is a sacrifice of self. So look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because here's the thing. If, if God has your heart, he's got your stuff and your preferences, right? He's got your praise. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2, in light of all that Paul has written in the book of Romans, his, one of his first directives, maybe his very first directive is, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right, so we offer our whole selves to God. The new covenant life is a life of sacrifice. We're not called to offer sacrifices inside the camp of animals, but outside the camp. And that means we lay ourselves on the altar. To praise God, obey his commands, and share what we have. The last thing in verse 17 is that uh, the new covenant life is a life of cheerful submission. So, before I start talking about this command... Uh, I want to acknowledge that I believe there's an assumption that is underneath this text that I want to make plain to you, okay? The assumption is this. It's that the leaders of whom he is speaking are godly, leaders who understand their accountability to God for leading the people and are teaching God's word to the people, okay? So they're... They're, they're diligently teaching God's word. They are cognizant of their accountability before God, and they are doing all that they can to live the same things that they teach. Okay? So when it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, right? When it says that, I believe the assumption that's underneath that is, insofar as they are telling you to do what God's word says... I do not have authority to say, you need to sell your house. I don't have the authority to tell you, like, you just need to give your kid up for adoption. Like, that would be an abuse of authority that I don't have. I could call it an abuse of authority, but I don't have authority like that. It would just be abuse, right? Like, this is not what this, I, I cannot command the people of God to do or not do anything except as it relates to the word of God. And so if my teaching lines up with what the scriptures say, you are accountable to obey. But you're not obeying me so much as you're obeying God. When these things are happening, the leaders of the church are seeking to obey Christ themselves, teaching his word faithfully, right? diligently caring for the people. When that's happening, the church 
should gladly submit to their authority and should obey. But I think, I think what he does here is really beautiful. Because I, I imagine the one writing this is one of the leaders, right? Maybe, maybe not their leader, but like one of the, like at least an associate of an apostle, if not maybe an apostle himself. Um, so this is going to be a Christian leader writing this letter. And he's not doing this to secure benefits for himself and his fellow leaders, so, so even when he says, let them keep watch over your souls, right? Let them do this. Look at verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. You might be tempted to roll your eyes and go, all right, yep, there's just a little club of leaders and they want to make sure that the people are going to kowtow to everything that they want and can have everything easy, right? Like that's what our flesh would say is going to happen when someone says, you better remember to obey and submit to your leaders. Let them lead you with joy and not with groaning. And what we mean by that is make their lives easy. He doesn't argue for the advantage of the leaders. What does he say? Look, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, not the leaders. The leaders have assumed a heightened accountability before God. They'll stand at his throne and they'll give an account of the way that they led your souls. They have disadvantaged themselves for your benefit. And he says, let them do their work with joy and not with groaning. Be a joy to lead because when you're a joy to lead, it's not that it benefits the leaders, it benefits you when you're a joy to lead. The new covenant life, like doesn't this sound so upside down, so backward to what the world would say? And it is. But this is, like we serve a crucified Savior. The greatest among us became a servant and died on the cross for his people. Why should his leaders be any different? It's about your advantage that you should be cheerfully, gladly submitting and obeying your leaders insofar as they're teaching you the word of God, insofar as they're being a godly example. I want to be careful saying this as a Christian leader of God's people, but I also say this as one who has been led by godly men for whom I'm incredibly grateful. So I wouldn't be able to lead you were it not for men in my life who have poured into me and led me well. Godly leaders are a gift from the Lord. And they're a gift for your benefit. And thus, it is pleasing to God when, godly, when a godly people cheerfully submits to and obeys their godly leaders who are watching over their souls and carefully teaching God's word diligently. The Christian life is a life of cheerful submission. Okay. 
It's a life of imitation, a life upheld by grace, a life of sacrifice, a life of cheerful submission. This is the way of those who serve a crucified Messiah. It is the way to life. It is the better way of the new covenant. This is life under the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for what we have heard. I pray that our understanding of your word has increased and that our ability by your Spirit's help to live these things out would increase as well. Thank you for all the gifts that you have given us, namely the gift of your son Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant of grace. Help us to be insistent upon grace and to live lives upheld by grace, to live lives of sacrifice, to live lives of cheerful submission. God, help us. This type of life is impossible apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we're asking for your divine aid to be these sorts of people who do these sorts of things. Help us to imitate the faith of those who have gone before us who endure to the very end. Help us to consider the outcome of their way of life. And help us to pass along your word to a generation yet to be born. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you never change, and therefore we are not destroyed when we come to you by faith. So build us up in our faith, please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the table today uh, that is a sign of this new covenant. This is part of the new covenant life as well. We, the new covenant people of God, uh, have the blessing and privilege and, yes, the right to come and partake of the bread and the cup together as a sign of unity with God and unity with one another. Um, so this, the, the table behind me has bread that is broken on it, and it has a cup that is filled with the crushed fruit of the vine. These are symbols. The bread shows us that Jesus' body was broken instead of ours for sins that we committed so that we could be forgiven and we could know God, so that we could be part of this new covenant people. And the, the cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins. It shouts and proclaims the way that the new covenant was made. The way that it's upheld. And so the invitation to this table is only for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. If that doesn't describe you, don't come to the table. Because it won't go well for you to eat and drink in disobedience. But if you are one of Christ's sheep, we encourage you to examine yourself to ask the Lord to search your heart maybe you've heard something today maybe you say I, I am not cheerfully submissive in, like in my spirit in general maybe 
you've, you've heard, I, I need, like I don't, I don't live a sacrificial type of life, so I need more of that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you are, are one who uh, just tends toward legalism instead of living a life that is upheld by grace and reminding yourself daily of the grace of God and existing by that. This is a moment for you to repent and lay that down before God. So repent. Inasmuch as God shows you disorder or sin in your heart, you repent. And then you come, eat and drink in faith, trusting the sacrifice that this table proclaims. If you want to pray with somebody, I will be right here on this row. I would love to pray for you, to point you toward Christ in any way that I can, whether you believe or don't believe. If you don't believe, I want to encourage you to take Jesus instead of the bread of the cup. But you can come pray. And if you do believe, but you want to lay something down and you just want someone to pray for you, I would love the privilege of doing that. You respond as the Lord leads in these moments. As we gather at the table of the Lord, we remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for this sign of the new covenant. May we not despise it in our hearts, but give it the place that it deserves and ought to have. Namely, let us observe it with reverence and awe and thankfulness in our hearts and let us observe it repenting of sins and trusting in Christ, being reconciled with brothers and sisters. And let it be a sign of unity, union with uh, us and you and union with us and one another. Jesus, we pray that you would lead your sheep and deal gently and mercifully with them in these moments. And we ask for your blessings upon this time and that you would accomplish the work that you wish to accomplish. Thank you for your body that was broken for us and your blood that was poured out for us.
he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's eat together and Paul writes in the same way also he took the cup after supper 
saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. We have a new uh, unreached people group that we're praying for for the month of November, and I'm looking it up on my uh, newsletter. We're going to pray for the Somali people of Somalia. Um, the, the country of Somalia is uh, a country that is dominated by Islam and uh, is extremely closed off to the gospel. Um, and is, is heavily, like heavily persecutes believers. Um, but they are neighbored by Ethiopia, where there are many believers in Christ. And so what I want you to pray today uh, is that God would stir in the hearts of Ethiopians to cross the border into Somalia and be willing to bear reproach for the name of Christ for the sake of uh, their brother's uh, potential brothers and sisters that are just across the border. So would you pray that for them? Father, Lord of the harvest, we believe that in Somalia the harvest is, is plentiful, but right now the laborers are few. There are laborers there. We thank you for them and pray that you would strengthen and encourage them and give them faith to persevere to the end and to endure to the end. And God, we also know that they are neighbored by a country with many believers, and so would you raise up and strengthen uh, by your grace the hearts of uh, the, the Ethiopians there to go and tell of the goodness of Christ. And um, Lord, if you stir upon our hearts to go, I pray that we would be willing, that we would lay ourselves down, that we would live this new covenant life of sacrifice and be willing to go wherever it is you call us. And I pray the same thing for the Ethiopians. Some of them only uh, probably step just a few miles away. I pray, God, that you would reach this unreached people group. And that you would loosen the stranglehold of Islam, a false religion, on that country. So we make this prayer through faith in Christ. Amen. Okay. Just a handful of announcements. Uh, number one. Right after service, we're going to set a five-minute timer, and then we are going to have a members meeting. Uh, so we'll discuss uh, a handful of things at the members meeting, but um, what we need you to do is when the timer starts, parents, go upstairs and get your kids and bring them down. Um, it's not ideal, but that's how we're going to do the meeting today with kids in the room. 
Um, and so we'll just, everybody pay as close of attention as you can to that. Um, and then uh, people who are guests, thank you so much for being here. Um, know that we love you. It's just going to be a little bit hectic in the five minutes right after service are over. We're going to have parents running upstairs. We're going to be trying. I'm going to get some papers to hand out to our members. Um, so thank you for coming. Uh, members, if you're not going to get kids, make sure that you hug a neck, shake a hand, something like that. Make people feel welcome. Um, Wednesday night is the women's uh, gathering, women's life group gathering. Uh, my understanding is that this is going to be the last men's women's night uh, before Thanksgiving and, and maybe of this year. But there are a couple of things that might be in the works for this intermediate time, like right after Thanksgiving up till the week before Christmas. There may be something that's offered for people who have interest in continuing in life group uh, in some form. So we'll make more announcements about that later. But the women's night, uh, I think you're making uh, winter comfort foods. Is that correct? And it's going to be at our house in Bentley. So if you need that address, if you need directions, uh, I can give those to you. My wife, Emily, in the yellow cardigan, uh, you could, uh, you could, she could give you directions as well. Uh, number three, a fall potluck, November the 19th at Dean and Catherine's house. It's going to be at four o'clock. And then um, we are asking all members uh, to bring two reusable grocery bags with non-perishable foods, cleaning supplies, and personal hygiene products by next Sunday. So just go, uh, go to the store, grab two of those little 99 cent reusable bags, something like that, and then uh, some some non-perishable food items, some cleaning supplies, personal hygiene products, and we're gonna hand those out on Thanksgiving Day when the Manor House people come. So we're gonna give those away with the meal. Um, so we're looking to get those next Sunday. And then finally, December 9th is a baby shower for Emily Mullis uh, at Olivia Littleton's house at 10.30. Does anybody have any other announcements? Nothing, don't bring substances that people, that inventive people could make other things from. <laughs> or, okay, also good, or that children could eat. Um, just bring, it's, it's like the Clorox disinfecting wipes. That's what we're looking for, okay? Thank you for that clarification. That was a very important one. All right, can we stand? We pray for us as we dismiss, and I said we'll put on a timer, and I'll be back in five minutes for our members. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that um, you would just show us this week, Lord, how we live that out in terms of living the, the life in the new covenant, Lord, the, the wonderful freedom that we've been given, but also the responsibility, Lord, and what you've called us to do. Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, that those things would take flesh and that they would walk themselves out in real ways in our life this week. Show us by your spirit what that looks like. Lord, I pray that you would bless every single man, woman, and child here as we go. Lord, that we would, we would feel and experience your presence this week. Lord, that we would feel your nearness, Lord, and that we would know. Lord, as we 
So we talked last week that, um, Lord, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Remind us of that wonderful truth. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus.